Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. And welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here once again for an episode of Revolution on this fine October Sunday morning. And as we do every month, we start off the show with our invigorating and enlightening roundtable discussions. And I am joined today by my regular co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. John Carousella. Hey there. And a special guest contributor, uh, Fred Isom, who is from Boston and is an intuitive coach and healer living in the Boston area at this time. And welcome, Fred. Thank you very much. And the topic I wanted to bring today is um, uh, something that at, at first I thought, is it just a game of semantics? Because it really is looking at what's the difference between two different words. And sometimes I think these words get used interchangeably without people thinking about it. But I think that there is a, a very deep difference between what they are both really about. And if we can recognize that and use them in a way that is really appropriate and indicative of what each of them represent, then we may actually find ourselves better able to interact with them and to take advantage of what each has to offer. So the the discussion that I would like to put out on the round table here today is what is the difference between curing or cure versus healing? So the first thing I want to ask each of my co-hosts here, is what do you perceive to be the difference between the two, between the cure versus the healing? So maybe we can start with you, John Carousella. Uh, Well, so for me, curing is the remission of symptoms, typically associated with a physical or mental disease. And healing is a realignment of purpose and energy that reflects a deep-seated, well, realignment uh, or, or reconnection with the, with the self. And, I, you know, so in other words, one is like from, from the outside in and one is from the inside out. I agree with John, but I have to say, Heisey, when you presented this topic, I was one of those people who had never thought about the difference between curing and healing. So I wanted to thank you for offering this for our round table. Through the process of exploring it, I learned quite a bit. And I realized that you can cure something, but you don't necessarily heal it in a sustainable way. So an aspirin or a painkiller can cure a headache, but it didn't necessarily heal 
what caused the headache, just as an example. So I find this curing versus healing absolutely fascinating. And and the healing part is so holistic, treating the whole person on whatever level needs to be healed, where the curing part is almost like a laser. It goes specifically into the area that's screaming for help. But once again, as I said earlier, knowing that you can be cured without healed is the part that deserves time and attention. And Fred, when you hear those two words, is there something that indicates uh, or do you think of as as a difference between those two or do you think of them interchangeably? Yeah, um, I have to say I've, I've loved the points that have been raised thus far and as part of, a part of my own um, discernment and contemplation of this question, I had I basically channeled into my former massage therapist and body worker self of what I used to do for about eight, seven or eight years until recently. And you know, even in training for that, we're told to be very careful about the words that we use because you know, massage doesn't cure anything. It doesn't, and you know, and we came and specifically say that it heals anything. So, you know, the real question is, you know, what exactly is it that you're doing whenever your body is in a state of discomfort or disease to get you back to that state of balance? And, you know, the the best things that I came to were that um, whenever you're sick or, you know, you're actually dealing with a, a case of disease, you know, healing might be the best term for the journey toward bringing your body back to health. And cure, you know, I, I did like what John said a moment ago with uh, cure being the eradication of something from your body. I did have some resonance with that. It's, that's a very, I find it to be a very uh, pendulum type of, uh, you know, a very pendulum concept. It just swings back and forth, healing, curing. Well, and I almost think that I understand why they may teach people, say, in massage school not to use a term like curing or a term like healing, but I feel it does a disservice to work like massage and other kinds of healing modalities to to not be able to to emphasize the importance of something like that in the healing process. So what would you then say to someone if they said, I have an incurable disease or I have a chronic condition, which kind of implies incurable? Um, you know, does that mean I have no hope for being healed? Or does that simply mean there is not a cure that is going to take this particular disease or ailment away from me? What comes to me is creating a structure that promotes the journey to wholeness. So there's things that you can do in your life with your body, your emotion, your dream, your spiritual energy matrices that can support moving, if I can use the word forward, into a state of wholeness or health. So I would tend not to touch the cure or am I healing aspect and focus on putting a good structure in place and seeing where the journey takes you. I like that, Mildred Lynn. That's that's a very interesting way to sidestep the the resistance that is bound to be present in the person who's saying or who's been told and is now parroting 
the notion that they have an incurable disease is to create structure mm-hmm. that uh, facilitates whatever is coming next that can be positive, right? And that doesn't have to be focused on the on the ailment at all. It could just be focused on enhancing their life in other areas, but the structure creates the support which allows the body and the mind and the spirit to come back into a condition of of ease or of health. I like that. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, I, I see. I, you know, there, there's something that came to me almost immediately when I saw your questions here was like the classic condition for me where curing is irrelevant, but healing is extraordinarily useful is hospice. When someone is dying, the goal is not to cure them. It's to help them heal. And and what needs to be healed in an environment, in a moment, uh, you know, during the, the, the time of, of hospice can be an extraordinary array of all kinds of things that uh, have been unresolved from the past. But, but one would not be uh, wise to try to cure, the, for example, cure the body at a time like that. That's, that's almost counterproductive. So um, people, people embrace healing and curing, uh, dep- I think, depending upon, uh, at least partly depending upon their outlook and whether they feel like there's a reason for one or the other or what the motivation is for one or the other, I guess. The only thing that really comes to mind is the matter, you know, the, the word, you know, thinking very scientifically here, um, very medically, is, you know, the, you know, whenever our body is in its place of balanced health, the word is homeostasis. You know, that's whenever your body biologically, chemically is imbalanced, you're, you know, you're said to be in good health. And, you know, is, you know, the process of, you know, the process of applying any sort of healing modality to the body is to get you from the place where you're not experiencing homeostasis back to where you are as close to that as you can possibly be. You know, so, you know, 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 adding another layer of possible definition onto that, you know, could we look at it as the, you know, as the place of whenever you have achieved homeostasis, are you possibly cured? Or is it just the matter of, you know, will you always be that ebb and flow and you use healing to just bring yourself back to as close to being in that place of homeostasis as you can be? Uh, One thing that, that made me think of that was I had a friend that had a number of illnesses all going on. And there were, and and many of them were things that were more about learning how to live with them and manage them rather than thinking I'm going to be able to to cure them. But she got so focused on thinking she was going to find a way to overcome them and to fix them and to find a cure for them that I think she missed out on the process of being able to heal because she 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 it's like she held on to her anger in order to motivate her to try to find a cure. And, you know, you'll hear from people that, I know it'll sound like an odd thing to say, but somebody may get an incurable disease, 
but then they will say something like, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it led to me becoming a whole different person. The healing may have come by them being able to forgive other people, to release and let go of things that they had held on to that were not healthy for them in some way. And so while they never get rid of the disease, they actually are able to heal many other parts of themselves. So do do you think that there is a time and a place when a cure versus a healing is more appropriate one over the other? Um, or do you think they should always be looked at and attempted simultaneously? Well, well if I went to the hospital, let's just say I went to the hospital with a broken arm, um, putting it in a cast, you know, I think sometimes there's a place at the table if there's an acute condition that needs immediate attention that might be life-threatening. That's when I would say a cast or some pain medication would be would be most welcome. And I'd look at, at that as almost like a cure for that. But do you think that we should have the consciousness to then engage in the healing process by saying, now that I have the cast, let me look deeper to see what it is that caused that to happen in the first place? Absolutely. Absolutely. If someone had the presence of mind to be able to do that, because they're going to be spending a lot of time sitting on the couch looking at that cast, they might as well think about something. And this is kind of like that, that, you know, like that Louise Hay approach to things where it says everything physical is a symptom or a manifestation of something spiritual, psychological, or mental. So be looking at a broken arm, but then going deeper and saying what was going on on a mental, spiritual, or psychological level that might be at the root of this being a manifestation of it. So if I go deeper, I can actually do the healing process, whereas the cure was a quick fix, but it doesn't necessarily affect or or help me move beyond what the underlying issue actually was. Um, so, uh, Fred, do you think that there is a, a time that a cure versus healing is more appropriate, especially since you've done like body work and that kind of thing? Or do you think there should always be an integration of the two simultaneously, no matter what? Um, I think really, it's I think it's situ I think it's situational, and I'll actually if you. Don't don't mind, I'll actually put in a little bit of a personal story here. Um, quite literally, for a, almost two years now, um, last year I didn't realize I needed a root canal um, on my on the upper left hand side of my jaw because I wasn't experiencing any of the classical or stereotypical sensations of pain around the tooth. And I caught two colds last year. I don't normally catch colds. Um, they progressed into sinus infections. I cleared them out like I normally do. And then this year, an ear infection popped up in the spring. I haven't had an ear infection since I was a child. <laughs> um, lo and behold, I get to the dentist and, you know, I go to my doctor and then I get referred to the dentist because I hadn't been in a while. X-rays were taken. I was over a year past due to have a root canal. The root cause of the problem, my, you know, the, the infected root above my tooth, I had a root canal done. So that, you know, in a sense was cured which, you know, the secondary problems are now in the process of mending and healing themselves. So, I mean, you know, even, you know, with that story, it's an integrated thing of what's the root of this problem 
now that the root has now that the root of this problem has been taken care of the healing process can continue and in the process of all that life has gone on people i think would say once they once you realize you needed the root canal that was i finally was able to identify what the cure was right but but then going deeper would say now let me take this opportunity to look at are there other ways and other areas in myself and in my life where i neglect or overlook things because I'm expecting them to look a certain way, meaning I'm expecting certain kinds of symptoms. And if that isn't there, then I don't look at it or think about it. Or are there things I'm ignoring and allowing to go on too long that I need to to do? Uh, you know, so to me, that would be the difference. And I would hope that those things come simultaneously. But I think that takes a lot of awareness and conscientiousness on the part of people to put the two together or do the two together rather than just look for how do I how do I mask or fix what's causing me pain. So John, anything that you would like to add around that idea of if one or the other is appropriate or if they should always happen simultaneously? Well, I you know, I think what what came to me as Fred was telling his story is uh you know, everything is everything is always a symptom of something deeper. And so one of the things that I would offer is why did you need a root canal? Right? What was it that in your life that allowed your tooth to, to deteriorate and the root to deteriorate? Right? There's, so even though you've cured the root canal problem, and it is helping your body heal the ancillary effects. What was it that created the symptom that that was your your tooth dying? Right, there's something beneath that. Right, and the, and and the deeper you go, the more metaphysical you get. The the deeper the layer of the symptom, the more metaphysical you get, and the more holistic the approach to healing it is likely to be. Uh, you know, I, I agree with Mildred Lynn, and you know, this is what this is where where Western allopathic medicine is amazing. Like, if you've got a chronic condition, you've been in a car accident, or you suddenly have, are are struck by some exotic um, bacteria or virus or something like that, you know, everything that we do to facilitate a cure, it's 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 great, it's wonderful, um, and I would and I would always encourage people to take advantage of those things in those acute conditions, those acute cases. And whenever I see a chronic condition, I think to myself, this is not something that should be cured. This is something that needs to be that where a healing is required because there's some underlying condition in the environment or in, uh, you know, in the background noise or in the behavior of the person or in the, the outlook of the person that is facilitating the the knocking the body out of homeostasis, right? This is like nature abhors a vacuum. If you are uh, experiencing a chronic problem, it is because you are chronically not present to some part of your life experience. And I don't think those are those things are curable. I think those are healable. So I guess that's that's kind of the way I think about it. I see. And and I also think that in, in our society, people have been very generous in how they have dis- decided to define what is acute <laughs> and what is not. 
because there's always this rush at the smallest little thing to get the pill, to get mm. to the doctor and get the antibiotic, to get the thing to, to cure or really in some ways mask the symptoms. But, you know, it, 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 there's always this rush. And there, there's, you know, because I, I have a lot of emphasis on things like herbalism. And with herbalism, you're really appreciating and allowing for the time it takes um, it's not going to necessarily happen in an hour, but if you stick with the the, the herbal um, process over a few days, what it's actually doing is it's working with the body to allow the body to heal itself. And I think to me that's one of the biggest differences and one of the most important aspects is healing means we're in a, alignment and working with the process and allowing the process to happen at that that deeper level so that it can actually be like our body could actually be stronger moving forward whereas a cure a lot of times fixes the problem in the moment but does nothing about the underlying issue and therefore it's just going to keep reoccurring over and over again uh, but I think that's because our society has kind of created this rush for the cure rather than uh, honoring the the time and the process it can take for healing, you know, and it's like, well, I can't take any time off of work, which is really more a symptom of our society, not understanding people need time off of work for healing to take place. They can't be out sick with the flu yesterday, and then you expect them to take a pill or, or do something so they can be back in the office today. Uh, we need to acknowledge and understand and allow for some of that healing time rather than curing time. Um, so, to to kind of close, what would be a, a a tip or a suggestion that you might offer people for healing, but thinking of it in the sense of a tip that would allow them to understand when a cure has taken place versus when a healing has taken place? Well, hi, see, I have a personal example that I'd like to offer. I recently went to see a clinic, clinical herbalist and an osteopath. And the reason I went to see them is because I'm on the journey of both my parents ailing. They're both elderly. And it was impacting my body. And because you had suggested the topic of curing versus healing, I had an opportunity to explore it a little bit. And it it helped me tremendously when I went to see these two health professionals because what I was able to say to them is I could really benefit with some relief from the symptoms that I'm experiencing. But I realized that on a spiritual level and on a heart level, I need to allow myself to go through a healing and that may take a year. It may take longer, it may take shorter, but I definitely need to go on to that journey. The process of going on the journey may keep triggering the symptoms that I'm experiencing, but I'm now in a place where I'm looking at things as I don't want a quick cure. Not that I wanted one, but that wasn't even on the table. What I could really benefit from is... Uh, putting a structure in place, as I said earlier, putting a structure in place to facilitate inner healing and moving towards wholeness as I'm on this part of the life journey. So I wanted to thank you for that again, but that's that would be my tip for whomever is listening to look at the big picture, 
to look at. Well, I will preface it by saying that it's always possible that I would have an energetic shift that would able enable me to get to the core cause that was causing a symptom. But I think that's a little bit down the path. But that's what I would like to offer for people to use that context when they're approaching a big life issue that seems to be impacting your body or your emotions in terms of curing and healing. Um, I like what Mildred has just touched upon and even sharing a little bit more of my own personal story. Um, in everything that I've gone through over the course of the past few months, it forced me to take stock of what it was that I was doing, but also what it was that I wasn't doing, that I should have been doing. And I think that whenever you take the time to step back from whatever it is that you're personally going through and really look at it in terms of what am I doing, what could I be doing better, what am I not doing that I should be doing, and not just making the mental choice to make those shifts and make those changes, but also make, you know, make the energetic choice, put the energy, put the investment, put the inertia into these are the changes that need to be made for this situation that has occurred to improve. You know, these are the, you know, these are the things that I've identified that I have control over in the situation. This is what I can do to improve this situation and then stick with that over the course of time. It's not necessarily going to be an overnight fix or cure all, but over the course of time, you can notice improvement. So I would I would definitely advise look at what you're doing, what you're not doing, what you could be doing better, and then make the changes and make the shift. Fred, I think you said it very well. You know, that sort of echoes my nature abhors a vacuum statement, right? If you, you know, you have to look at what you're, how you're not living your life, as well as how you are living your life. Where are you not fully occupying yourself? Where are you not fully occupying your purpose and your and your beingness? And this is, you know, this is not. Uh, easy stuff, uh, and I, I'm not. I don't mean to suggest that it is right. It's esoteric stuff to to sure. really get a sense for who you are, and how you should be walking your talk, and and what talk you should be talking, and all this stuff, right? So it really comes down to to fully occupying yourself, fully occupying your life, and and when you have a, a an ailment, ask yourself, where did this come from? What part of myself am I not living fully in or fully through? And, you know, I, I, I don't know if my, this may be true for others. Uh, it's certainly true for me. I know the, the one area where I consistently need to redouble my efforts is in the, in the area of forgiveness, right? Forgiving myself. A lot of it is forgiving myself. But it's also forgiving circumstances and forgiving other people and forgiving, you know, forgiving ignorance and forgiving, uh, you know, carelessness. All those things, they, they can build up in you and, and create resistance to accepting what is and, and being receptive to what is so that you can work with it. And that's true both externally in your job and, you know, your, your sort of emotional state, your, your, your mental state when you're dealing with traffic, uh, and also internally when, when you feel sick, right? When you feel, you know, what you want to eat is not quite right or whatever. So it, it's acknowledging, forgiving, and releasing resistance is a huge 
way to get to homeostasis. So that's that's kind of where I would what I would offer. Well, thank you everyone for being willing to take some time to explore this topic and hopefully everyone listening this has encouraged you to maybe start thinking about the difference between cure versus healing and how you see each of those as well as how you may approach each of those and if there are some things you need to do in order to go deeper and go beyond just the cure to really look at how you can heal in ways, even if it's something that you think or if it's something you're dealing with that is incurable, quote-unquote, that doesn't mean that it can't have a healing uh, aspect to it. Uh, So I encourage you to take some time to think about that. So I want to thank my co-hosts for having joined me here today, Mildred Lynn McDonald. My pleasure as always. And John Caracella. It's great to be here. And for our special contributor this month, Fred Isom, intuitive coach and healer from Boston. My pleasure. Thank you. And stay tuned for the rest of the show. And if you would like to get into the queue to get a reading a little later in the show, you can Skype in from the show page or call 646-716-5510 in order to do so. And we will be right back. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. Willows L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light.
My revolutionary guest this month is Yeshe Rabbit, a holy woman, priestess, intuitive, artist, and friend to humanity. Yeshe Rabbit is a mystic who has studied many different spiritual paths and feels most intimately woven into goddess traditions and Tibetan Dharma practices. She has been reading Tarot and offering teachings and consultations for 13 years to clients worldwide. She is best known for her gentle humor, compassionate presence, down-to-earth manner, and practical advice. You can find Yeshe Rabbit at events such as Pantheacon, the Northern California Women's Herbal Symposium, the Sacred Harvest Festival, Goddess Spirit Rising, and the Glastonbury Goddess Conference. You can often find her buzzing around the Sacred Well, the store that she co-owns in Oakland, California, which you can find at www.sacredwell.com. Yeshe Rabbit offers free online meditation and chanting sessions with the Sky Dancer Sangha, the opportunity to dive into love's deep waters at the monthly Temple of Aphrodite full moon rituals, revelries and mysteries of witchcraft at Sabbat and full moon rituals with Kaya Coven, where she is a presiding high priestess and architect of the Mother of the New Time project. If you are looking to find or start a supportive sacred women's network in your area, you might want to consider looking at the collaborative Women with Wings project at www.wearewomenwithwings.com, an inspiring sisterhood that is helping women take flight from limiting circumstances and soar towards their goals. You can learn more about Yeshe Rabbit and her project or enjoy her blog and podcast at www.wayoftherabbit.com. So please join me in welcoming to the show revolutionary guest Yeshe Rabbit. And welcome, 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 Yeshe Rabbit, to the show. Good morning, Hi C. Thank you for such a kind welcome. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of you to take some time out of your Sunday morning to be here. Um, and uh, hopefully if you had a chance to listen in to the roundtable um, that we just had, I wanted to start before we jump into our main topic and just maybe ask you in general what your thoughts are in when you think about if there's a difference between a cure versus healing. Um, and also, very specifically, there was something I saw just this morning that made me think of asking this of you, because I know you're very involved in social justice um, and, you know, really uh, putting much of your efforts towards, um, I'm going to sound like Martin Luther King here for a moment, you know, putting efforts towards uplifting those who are downtrodden and supporting those that are experiencing moments of instability um, and in general working to make right where people and situations have been wronged. And this morning there was the story of Tamir Rice, who they have determined there was reasonable force used to kill this 12-year-old in a playground. And mm -hmm. it made me think in terms of this difference between curing and healing that 
a lot of people, you know, they, they're like, fire the officer that that, um, that shot him, or uh, it's always about, you know, make the other person pay or do this or do that, because they think that's going to fix the situation, or somehow alleviate the grief. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about more what would need to be done, not just to cure by like, say, fire the officer, but to heal the divide that has existed for a long time um, and, and kind of that difference between the cure versus healing um, and how that can take place. This is a very rich question. Um, yes, I woke up this morning and saw the news of the justification of the murder of Tamir Rice with a lot of grieving. I feel great sorrow for um, his family and also his community, but really for the entire black community in this country um, who suffer a daily level of fear and terror uh, that those of us who are Caucasian do not experience. And so I think the first thing I want to say is that in terms of a cure versus healing in this situation, one of the most healing things that I think is possible um, is for those of us who have the privilege associated with being white or appearing white to um, seed the primary speaking spaces on this subject to those who are living at the center of that issue, namely black people. And so my first thought would be uh, if there is to be any healing, right, it, it involves not really listening to what I have to say about it as much as listening to what a black person would have to say about their feelings on this situation, what effect it's had, this um, incident has had, the trend toward violence has had, and their own experiences of um, police interaction. Um, so it would be best for us to listen to the people who have the experience. And so to that end, I'd recommend um, that people go and look up Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, C-O-A-T-E-S, Ta-Nehisi um N-E-H-I-S-I, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and also the Black Girl Danger blog. So if you look up those two names, that's a good place to start um, hearing some really powerful voices from the center of this issue. And I think that if we think about, um, I was really listening with a lot of interest to your panelists this morning. I thought that a lot of what was said there was spot on and, and very um, useful for reflection. But if we were to think about um, racial injustice as a wound, a major wound on the body of humanity, and particularly on the body of black humanity, um, in this country especially, we will look at the wound as having a center and edges and then a zone around the wound as having 
tissue damage. And then there's all the compensatory measures that the body takes to try to hold the wounded part of the body in some kind of stability. So then there's the aches and pains that happen in the rest of the body when, say, the the leg has a wound, right? We can't move that leg, so then the back and the shoulders and the other leg are all trying to compensate. And I think that if we are to think about a wound like this, then we can start to see the layers that must happen. The very first thing that has to happen is that at the center of that wound, there is whatever the um, infl- you know, major inflammation and damage is. And to me, I see that in this culture in America as being the violent tactics used by police toward everyone, including people of color. And that our police, amongst the global police population, have some of the least training in nonviolent tactics that is available. And also, right there at that center is the legacy of racial injustice that goes alongside police brutality. Because police brutality, we see, happens... Uh, you know, also to people who are not black, also to Latinos, and also to um, uh, people who are mentally ill. So there are layers that that police brutality has taken on, but particularly towards the black community, there's the wounding of racial injustice that goes back hundreds of years here. So those would be the the things that we need to get to stop bleeding, right? That's the, like, immediate response. We need this to stop bleeding. We need to, A, cease police brutality, and, B, cease the unjustifiable and violent treatment of black in this country. But then around that, there are the edges of the wound, and there's there's kind of damage zone and that is that all of the different um, groups of people of color in America and as well as marginalized people for any reason, mental stigmatization, um, people who have chronic health issues, gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals, women, um, all of these groups of people are within what we might say is the kind of damage zone right around that immediate wound because oppression of one sort is um, not existing. It, it does not exist in a vacuum. So oppression, a culture of oppression, is a damage that also needs to be addressed in terms of how it affects other groups of people. And this is actually where I think that a lot of people are are trying to be well-motivated when they say things like all lives matter. And, of course, all lives matter. That's a given. But the bleeding wound right now is black lives. And if we are not willing to see that and address that, that wound is still going to be bleeding. And there's literally no cure or healing that's that's possible. It's kind of like if we know that there's an infection, we don't just kind of put a Band-Aid over that and walk away. You have to get in and clean out the infection. And the infection here is that 
the propagation of slavery in this country by white people and the systems designed to support slavery's existence and the systems of thought designed to justify the mistreatment of black people up to and including the ways in which the medical establishment looks at black bodies, the ways in which the government looks at black bodies, and the ways in which the educational system and prison systems and other social systems look at black bodies is a bleeding wound that has to be dealt with. And if it's not, as we can see, that um, trend toward oppression proliferates into other groups of people as well. Um, further, there are all the ways that the body compensates for trying to stabilize the wounded area. And I think that, you know, looking at the prison industrial complex um, and the and the, the vast machinations that have to happen in order to keep that system afloat that touch all the way down to the individual officer in uniform, but also touch the congressperson, that also touch the corporate person in a position of power at um, a company that benefits from the slave labor of prisoners. Um, all of these machinations are like the ways in which the body continuously tries to um, adjust itself around the wound. And so I can see where, you know, this this one twelve year old Tamir Rice, you know, dead without justification. Without justification. Truly, no matter what any court says, no matter what any so called paid expert says, this damage, this bleeding wound does not have a possibility for for healing or for cure unless all of these other systems are addressed and unless we're willing to really look at the infection, which is the white mind of oppression and the enculturation and enthronement of oppression as a way of life for us. So um, pursuant to some of the comments of your, of your panelists, um, I would say that the the cure for this, of course, would be that it stops, full stop, allowing police to kill unarmed people. We stop allowing police to shoot on sight. We stop allowing police to take physical liberties with the bodies of black and brown people, with the bodies of mentally ill people, with the bodies of transgender people, gay and lesbian people. But And so part of that cure is indeed um, just the way we would treat a disease. Wipe it out. Stop it. Stop the officer from operating. Stop the officer from being rewarded with pay for having killed someone. Um, I do believe there should be um, serious investigation and career demerit for anybody who um, utilizes force in the line of duty that turns out to be force against anyone without a weapon, full stop, because you have a weapon and they don't. Um, 
But then for the healing to happen, that is a much more systemic issue. Healing has to happen when, for example, you know, any officer who has killed somebody should have to apologize to their family, regardless of whether it was justified or not. Any officer who has hurt somebody should have to apologize to that person and have some form of negotiated, mediated resolution if that victim is willing to be present for the dialogue. And if the victim is not willing to be present for the dialogue, even if that victim was found to be guilty of a crime, they need to be able to have the right to sovereignty and say no. That's one one aspect. But then there's a whole other layer of healing that has to happen on the economic level. We need to stop relying on the slave labor that's found in the prison industrial complex. There needs to be accountability toward the executives of organizations that are contracting with prisons for labor. There needs to be accountability at the level of the federal government about the national statistics on this particular um, event and why our statistics are so much higher than other countries, Um, why our statistics for the use of weapons as a first response are so uh, much higher than other countries. And I think that we also need to address, and this is going to take a long time, the actual results of the legacy you know, the actual results and legacy of the institution of slavery and what it has done both to the minds and the bodies and also, I suppose, to the spirits of all of the people who are were involved. And that includes providing aid and assistance and help to black people in overcoming the psychological and transgenerational trauma associated with slavery and and with objectification, but it also has to involve the retraining of the white mind to see its invisible and unquestioned biases that were put there into our mindset and then enculturated in order to keep the illusion of supremacy. All right. Well, and, um, you know, it, it, from everything that you just said there, it makes me think that what people usually perhaps get stuck in when they think of cure versus healing is cure is the, the phrase of make it stop. And mm-hmm. healing is not the absence of suffering, but healing is the willingness to go through the process of the suffering in order to arrive at the liberation that comes with the healing as a result of the experience of the suffering process. And I think that's what most people don't want to have to go through. You know, I can imagine some DA coming in and saying, get me these reports, get me these experts so that this becomes justified and make it go away rather than let's use this to now go through a difficult, painful process of looking systemically at what we need to do in order to start changing this at a deeper root level. So um, now I'm sure there's many who are listening thinking, why are we talking about this when this was certainly not the topic that supposedly was going to be talked about today? Um, But I did want to bring it up one. 
well, to, to say oh, that that I want to, you know, we, we have a phrase that's often said is what is remembered lives. Um, and I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to then dedicate this conversation coming up to the spirits of all of those who have been perhaps forced to enter into the spirit, spirit realm prematurely uh, through violence, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, you were going to say something, and I rudely interrupted. Oh yes, oh yes. This. Thank you for saying that, High C, because I actually think that this is ancestor work. Ancestor work has got to be more than just standing at our altar, lighting candles in front of pictures of our own dearly beloved departed. Ancestor work has to be looking at what was built and what we carry, right, and and how we carry it. So I'm really grateful that you brought up this this topic and I'm excited to talk about um, you know the magical work that is associated with ancestors and and some of the magical concepts that we're going to be covering today but it is, it is important for me to say that we should we should as um, magic workers and healers and witches and pagans and whoever else might be listening um, spiritual beings it is important that our ancestor work include looking at the legacies of what's been done by our predecessors and trying to create a better world for everybody, for all of us, right? Because that's going to be ultimately what gives every ancestor peace. But but rabbit, standing in front of the altar is easy. I don't want to have to go <laughs> out and do something that's hard. Um <laughs> So why, you can why, stand in front of your altar and you can write a letter to and call your congressperson. You know, you can stand in front of the <laughs> altar and call your senator. You can stand in front of the altar and call the police department phone number and demand accountability. You mean I have to stand it'll in front of my be, altar? It'll still be beautiful, I promise. You mean I have to stand in front of my altar and do work? Ugh. Um, <laughs> so why is it? that this time of year seems to bring our thoughts around more towards the spirit realm and working with spirits and, and just that aspect of things? Well, you know, there's there's lore and then there's nature and then there's just, I guess I might say, the ineffable uh, magic on the wind. You know, the lore of um, especially European pagan culture is that this is a time of year um, associated with um, the the actually chasing away of evil spirits. Um, and if you think about it, this makes sense because um, there's headed into winter. Um, this is the riskiest time. Things stored in granaries cannot mold or mildew otherwise the the stash for winter is gone um this is the time when animal herds are culled and meat is put aside for winter prepared for winter um and again a very delicate process you don't want anything to go badly all the preparations for winter also in a superstitious uh sense if things go badly, might be a harbinger of the winter to come. So, 
cultural traditions that are associated with the time of year, there's also the fact that in this waning half of the year, at least for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, um, that it is a time of um, kind of reflection on what it is that we're having to let go or what's gone before. So it makes sense that ancestors and that other spiritual phenomena would be um, paid attention to uh, as part of a reflection process, a letting go process. Um, But then there's also, interestingly, and I don't know if your listeners have this experience, but there's just this ineffable magic on the wind at this time of year. And I can't tell if it's there because we have culturally co-created it or if it was there and we have all followed it in our cultural um, um, traditions. But having lived in places like on the East Coast that had falling leaves and winter coming and really cold times, night times at this time of year, I remember just feeling a certain magic coming into the air right around October 1st that even before I really knew anything about witchcraft I or, or the Sabbaths or Samhain or anything like that, I still felt it. I, you know, I felt it as a little girl going to Catholic school, running through the leaves. Now that I live in California in a relatively even keeled uh, zone where it's you know, maintains a pretty constant temperature throughout the year and there's just a few months of rain and the rest of the time, you know, there's not really a, a variation on the seasons. I still feel it and it's in the wind for me. It's that a wind comes when I'm walking down the street and it's the same wind here at my age of 41 in California in the Bay Area as it was when I was 11 and walking through crunchy, crispy leaves in upstate New York. And there's something about a magic in the wind to me. So I'm not sure. Do you experience something like that? Or where do you where do you think it comes from? Well, even as you were talking about that, if, if nothing else, this is that time of the year when we start to be surrounded by death whether it's mm-hmm. the the leaves that are falling off the trees, which is that sense of dying. Um, you know, mm-hmm. th- there's that, what you talked about, the the culling of the animals. Um, you know, we see our gardens starting to fade or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that it's, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, it's the the closer proximity of death all around us that starts mm-hmm. to shift that awareness and and I think creates this time of year and why there is that kind of um, focus or we start to have thoughts in that way. Um, and mm-hmm. so so when you uh, when, when we talk about doing things like ancestor work or or even just working with spirits because we're going to get into some different kinds of spirits um, and things, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Beyond, say, going to the graveyard and leaving some flowers on a gravestone in in remembrance, why do you think it's important for us to connect and work with the spirit realm uh, beyond just that one little remembrance acknowledgement kind of thing? Well, 
um, a remembrance and acknowledgement kind of touches something in our memory and, um, you know, touches and awakens a sort of a sweet, sensitive, gentle part of ourselves. It also touches upon a longing, a longing for connection. Working with ancestors at this time of year or year-round deepens that connection and fulfills some of that longing. So the gesture of placing flowers on a grave is, um, I think, it's more than than merely an acknowledgement, but it's also kind of an I miss you. I wish I could talk to you. I wish I could seek your wisdom and your counsel. I wish I could remember that recipe. I wish I had that picture again, right? All of that longing is bound up in that gesture. And ancestor work helps us address that longing. Now, working with other classes of beings, which which we'll cover, um, can also be about satisfying that some of that longing and and in certain ways it's about um, moving beyond longing and looking at how our longings can sometimes grip at us and and cause us harm but just to sort of be on the you know on the subject of ancestors um, for a minute I think that the longing for that wisdom can be fulfilled by deepening ancestor work so when I place the flowers on my grandmother's grave and I have, you know, a tear that falls from my eye as I do every time I go there, I miss her. I have a longing. I wish I could hear her laugh. I wish I could hear her accent. I miss her dinners. Um, all of those things are, are are very present for me when I'm there in that devotional gesture. But... I really think about it. If I if I were to choose to engage that ancestor work, um, you know, I might go and listen to songs that she used to sing to me when I was a child. I might go and look them up and listen to them. And then all of a sudden, something in me is touched by that and is, in her name, fulfilled. Or if I miss her cooking i miss her her big dinners and how she would set a very fancy table maybe i would host people to come over and i would use some of her recipes or my own and i would replicate that and in this way i would fulfill that longing i long for an experience an experiential connection and even though it's not the same because she's not there it is the same because i'm there and i was there to begin with, and any longing I've generated is because I was there to begin with. So I can still be there. And I think that ultimately through doing this, we can come to understand the timeless nature of all of our own ancestors and of our own spirit. And it will help to increase our presence with regards to those who are still alive and around us who we can enjoy right now. But I also think that we can fulfill deep longings that maybe we've assigned to ancestors, um, but that are really about us and about what we've become because of our ancestors, who we are because of our ancestors. So, so to my thinking, it's it's beyond the 
the gesture of laying flowers on the grave, which is an important gesture and is very important for us and them. Acknowledgement is always important in the seen and the unseen worlds. But I also think that then the actions we can take in memory of, in homage to, or in honor of our ancestors, those things satisfy the deeper longing that's behind the gesture of acknowledgement. Uh, so my, you know, my um, inspiration for having you on to talk about this is because you're offering a class that um, is exploring four different types of spirits and working with them, um, ancestors, ghosts, guardians, and guides. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if we can maybe just go through each of those to give a sense of the distinction of what those are and maybe uh, an understanding of how to connect with or to work with those um, in, in their particular ways. So we can, we'll can we start with ancestors. We've used that word a lot, obviously, um, already. Um, so maybe you can give a, a, a definition, a description of what it is you mean when you use the term ancestor. Yeah, an ancestor in my in in you know and and this is actually very important that we clarify these terms as we go because the way that I use these terms might be different from the way someone else has learned or used these terms. But for me, an ancestor is um somebody who has crossed over from the physical realm into the spirit realm and who either is connected to us via blood or via pathways of affinity um you know we can we can connect with our blood ancestors but we can also connect with inspiring individuals throughout history whose example provided um in uh, some kind of a, a base for us to launch our own ideas goals and visions from um and in in the class started last week and we covered ancestors um um in the first class and the i i have sort of subdivided these ancestors of blood and or affinity into three kind of distinct subcategories and these are relevant to a concept of triple soul that i have studied in Mongolian and Siberian shamanism, but a concept, a concept of triple soul is, is found in other cultures on Earth, in Hawaii and in other places. Um, there have been this kind of allusion to a triple soul, and the, the the triple soul that I have encountered um, is the piece of the soul that returns to nature and becomes sort of one with everything. And so in this way, um, if we were to try to understand this this piece of the soul, um, I have a friend, Molly, who, um, you know, and who she to- told me about how when her cat, Bagheera, died, who was a beautiful, uh, noble black cat, um, when he passed on, a few, I guess, I don't remember if it was a few weeks or a few months later, she was walking somewhere and she looked up because a raven was crowing, you know, kind of cawing in a tree overhead and making its vocalizations. And she looked into the eye of that bird and she saw the eye of her deceased cat. 
And she said, oh, okay, now I understand. It's all going to be all right. And I think probably many of us can relate to that, of having had some kind of a nature phenomenon when somebody passed who was close to us, um, feeling it, again, as I mentioned before, sometimes it's a wind. Sometimes it's a vision of an, of an, of an unusual animal. You know, people have reported seeing animals in an, appear in unusual ways right before or right after discovering that a loved one had passed. Um, and then there's also, um, you know, kind of a, a sense of nature, you know, a lightning storm or a thunderstorm or an earthquake or a snowfall or a rainbow. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the rainbow is very um, important to um, honoring the departed because the rainbow um, is a signifier that that person has passed beyond the realm of the physical, but has managed to keep their spirit intact as they join the numinous. So that's like the first way we can look at, at an ancestor is what is the part of the soul that returns to nature and manifests natural phenomena. And one of the ways in, that this has been honored in um for example, in Mongolian and Siberian shamanic cultures, is that um, there will be, especially if someone is, has been a shaman or a healer, they will have a special tree consecrated by their family in their name. And that tree will be where, say, the shaman's drum is slashed and then hung because what's found whole in this world is thought to be um, broken in the spirit world and what's broken in this world is whole in the spirit world. So that's one way of acknowledging that. And then the second sort of class of ancestral being is kind of almost like an echo. It's not a sentient, um, it's not a sentient self uh, motivated or volitional being. It's more like, an echo of that being an imprint or a hologram that they've left in space time. And so, so something like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden out of nowhere, you smell your grandmother's perfume and you might reach out with your spirit, your mind and say, grandma, are you there? And maybe there's no answer. Maybe there's no, there's no revelation. There's no vision. There's no voice that you hear or anything but you just had this sort of subtle presence, almost like a pressure of a hand or a fleeting glimpse of a memory, um, a smell, um, or a, <clears throat> a phrase that the person used to say comes in front of your view, like on your social media, and you're like, wow, that's, it's like as if my grandmother's trying to talk to me from beyond the grave, right? But But it's not sort of, it's not, interactive it's not um sort of it's not something you can like speak back to right so that's kind of the second you might say class of in, of ancestral visitation is this thing that that just is there and it kind of a, appears holographically in your vista um in some way and then the third class of ancestral spirit that I've encountered is volitional. 
and interactive. This is, for example, um, you have a dream. And I'll give it, I'll give a personal example because this has happened. You know, my grandmother, whom with whom I was very close, died when I was twenty, and she a year later appeared to me in a dream. And in that dream, she moved on from the earthly realm to the numinous. Um, it was like her soul journey here was complete. And I, I was in the dream standing by this beautiful garden party. And these people were laughing and it sounded like glasses were tinkling. But the party was just over a little rise. Uh, I couldn't see it. I could hear it. I was, and I knew it was right there, but for some reason I couldn't go in and I was just on the other side of this hill. And then all of a sudden my grandmother came walking up and she paused and she looked at me and then she continued walking up that rise. And when she reached the top of the rise, my grandfather who had died several years prior walked up from the other side of the rise and he took her hand and he did not look at me. He looked at her and then she turned and looked back at me and we bid each other farewell and then she went in and I heard kind of like, you know, an old fashioned party, you know, where there would be someone who would say, so Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so and everybody would sort of acknowledge the arrival of a new guest. So that's what happened and I heard their their names being announced and then she went in and it was definitely um, such a a real dream that I knew that this was a way that she had found to get me a message. Now since that time, as I mentioned, now 21 years later, I've dreamed of her on three different occasions where she came in dreams and communicated with me a message about something that was going on in my life. But I've been aware at each of these times that it's taken significant effort for her to do so. She has to basically stop a dream that I'm having so that she can come into it, convey a message. And in each of these dreams, she's never been able to speak words with her mouth, but I'm still looking into her eyes and I can somehow hear her and we communicate. And other people I know have reported this as well. So this this is the piece of your soul that lives on in lineage. So um, this is like the part of my blood that is her blood is receiving this message. Um, and she's come in several different dreams and given me counsel. So this shows volition to me. She's come and actually interacted in a way that I cannot possibly misunderstand. Um, so that's sort of how I view the ancestor realm, that there's the part of the soul that goes into nature and dissolves into oneness with all phenomena, and that then we kind of we kind of witness phenomena in, in, and we know that in, in nature and we know that, that that's, going to remind us of that person and then there's the holographic kind of imprint or echo of the person and and that's like 
the part of their soul that was just a human one time in this one being that's no longer. And then there's the part of their spirit that is, you know, ancestral in our blood and that will return in wisdom forms is still volitional through us, through our workings in the world. And this is why I think taking it beyond the step of just laying the flowers on the grave to going home and preparing a meal according to my grandmother's recipe, that that's the part that, that is satisfied, you know, that part of that ancestral being, that volitional part, that part that lives on in my blood that right now motivates me to do things in certain ways because of our longstanding relationship. That, that's the part that's honored by those activities. So then how do we distinguish between an ancestor and a ghost? Like how would somebody say, oh, you know, I, I smelled my grandmother's perfume when I was in my bedroom. And how would they know whether that's that second aspect you just talked about for an ancestor versus the ghost of my grandmother that is actually here and around me? Well, this is my my personal um, way of identifying these. To me, and I, I would not call a benevolent ancestor a ghost. An ancestor who is benevolent and truly wise confers wisdom, blessings, and assistance. Ghosts haunt things. So a ghost, in my view, is not only the energy of a deceased person, it can also be the energy of a past event, the energy of a great wounding, the energy of a um, particular incident in time that we found painful in some way. It can also be a malevolent being. Um, it can be an, an unsatisfied being. So ancestors bless, ghosts haunt. And by haunt, I literally mean haunt, not in the like kind of fun, cute way that when we think, oh, I'm going to come haunt the you know cemetery with my friends. Uh, you know, we're going to go and do some witchcraft in the cemetery. Or, you know, we sometimes at this time of year hear the word haunt to mean something kind of fun and spooky. But I'm actually talking about haunt in the classical term, linger over, um, hover over, uh, invoke fear, invoke discomfort. So ghosts, as a class of beings, are restless spirits. And again, there are both volitional and non-volitional restless spirits. Um, so a, a volitional restless spirit might be the ghost of a deceased person who's um, who died with without resolving their affairs and feels profoundly unresolved and lingers in a, an, a place and causes havoc. Whereas an ancestor might be some someone who passed on and whether their affairs were resolved or not, their spirit is resolved and they might be present in a space and confer blessings. Um, you know, the difference between an ancestor, another way to look at it would be a difference between an ancestor and a ghost is the ancestor leaves you with that, that faded, slightly faded smell of perfume and a feeling of comfort 
where a ghost leaves you with a phantom smell of rotting meat and a kind of an eerie and uncomfortable feeling in a space. Those are volitional ghosts, um, and they they haunt you. They haunt you. And then there are non-volitional ghosts, and that's more like the energy of a past event, something that can't be undone. Um, there's a place in um, in Oakland, Mandela Parkway, where the bridge collapsed and many people died during an earthquake. And that place, when you go to the place where that happened, there's actually like a little memorial, but you wouldn't know it because it's like on the median of the road. That place is haunted. There's so much grief there. Is it haunted by malevolent spirits of the people who died there? Of course not. They're not malevolent. I mean, I'm sure that they're very, I'm sure they were very unhappy with how they died. They died in a horrible, instant, unexpected way. But it's the grief of the entirety of the event that haunts the place. It's a non-volitional grief that hovers over the place. Um, I believe, referring to our previous conversation, you know, that the playground where Tamir Rice was killed is going to be a place of haunting. Is it because Tamir Rice will be there angrily chasing children around or making people feel badly? I don't think that that's that little boy's agenda. His spirit probably is going to be crying out for justice for a very long time. But is he malevolent? No. Did a terrible thing happen there, an unjustifiable thing, a painful thing that created grieving for an entire community? Yes, that thing happened there. And will that grieving aggregate itself into a spirit that for many years now will hover over that place? It absolutely will. No one who's from that community will be able to drive by that park without thinking about what happened to that little boy. So that, and that's, that's kind of an, another class of of. A haunting, I guess you might say, it's a non-volitional haunting, and that's what I mean when I say ghosts. They're the things that haunt us, sometimes volitional, sometimes not. So, what are um, some techniques, as well as some tools, whether it's particular herbs or crystals or other things that people can uh, use or employ in order to? connect with ancestors, to work with them? Would you suggest trying to do so with ghosts as well? Or is that maybe just a protection type of work or a banishing in the sense of helping them to release and move on rather than linger about kind of work? Well, I think there's, you know, for for ancestors, there are many different stones um, we can use to connect with ancestors. There's, uh, for example, uh, a black obsidian pebble uh, that forms that's called Apache Tear. And these are um, stones that are commonly associated with uh, working through grief, black obsidian in general, and mahogany obsidian 
are great for working through grief and working through, um, you know, the pain of loss um, in terms of connecting with benevolent ancestors. One might choose to work with celestite or angelite if one sees the benevolent ancestor as kind of a guardian angel figure, or one might choose to work with um, sugilite as a way to connect with an ancestor um, for the purposes of transformation, help, help, asking for help in transforming one's life. Um, herbs that might be used for working to call in an ancestor um, include mugwort, which opens the, the dream state, the trance state. Dittany of Crete um, is a, has been traditionally used um, to, to burn, to honor ancestors and call forth the spirits of the dead, open the way to communion with them. Um, if you're wanting to, it, my thought is that if you're dealing with a ghost, that is to say um, a malevolent or haunting force, there's no shame in trying to help a malevolent or haunting force to find peace, but that the very first thing that one needs to do is to be able to protect oneself. Um, because when you are dealing with malevolent or haunted haunting forces, um, it's easy for these, if we're in a very soft and kind of compassionate space, it's easy for us to think, that we can kind of let our wards down and um, that we can work with them in an unguarded way um, because we're feeling soft of heart and compassionate. So then if there's something that's truly malevolent, it can take root in the fertile ground you have provided by letting down your guard. So I definitely suggest that anybody choosing to work with a malevolent spirit goes in well-protected Various methods worldwide for this have included um, uh, carrying a small mirror or wearing a small mirror, um, carrying or wearing a pouch filled with protective herbs like salt and, and salt or um, uh, black cohosh is a protective herb that can go into a pouch like this. Black pepper is another protective herb that can go into a pouch like this. Um, you can do a mental visualization of yourself shielded by light, shielded by um, all of the benevolent protectors and ancestors who walk with you. And then finally, um, then, yeah, then, when you know, kind of going into that space, once you've discerned if there is any potential for liberating the spirit, then the question becomes, do you navigate and negotiate with them? Or if there is no potential for liberating the spirit in a gentle way, do you just need to do a banishing that says, I, you know, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And... um so obviously, you know, for any of us who wants to work with compassion, we want to liberate the spirit and help them find their path to, um, you know, transcendence, to union with the numinous, to a restoration of their wholeness, not 
in body, but in a dissolved form as one with everything. But sometimes they don't want that. And sometimes you can't force that. So being ready with a backup plan of, okay, fine, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And then doing things like gridding base with protective crystals, such as black tourmaline, sprinkling salt, ashes, or um, asafetida, other herbs across thresholds, doorways, windows, um, carrying amulets and talismans to ward off, um, attacking ghosts. Um, that's all That's all pretty powerful and, and necessary. So it's kind of, I'd say, kind of going into the ghost realm, be willing to do both. And then there's kind of an, another um, level or aspect of spirits that, um, uh, I- I- at least in, in the title of your class, would be guardians and guides. Now, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but my understanding would be now we're moving into spirits that perhaps have never taken any sort of corporeal form, but are in the right. spirit realm to to assist us, for us to connect to, for guidance or for protection or for other types of things. So can you um, maybe define a little bit um, what guardians and guides are? Yes. Um, Guardians and guides can be ancestors, but don't have to be ancestors. You're absolutely right. They may have been in corporeal form at some point, or they may not have. Guardians... um, and and these are different than deities. I'm not speaking of deities specifically. Um, those have their own function. And I'm going to be actually teaching a different class on on um, you know the gods and goddesses and deities after this one, after this uh, spirit class. But guardians are. Um, for example, spirits of place. Um, maybe there have been times when you've been on a hike, walking, and you've come into some some little spot, and it feels different. And there feels to be almost like a presence. Maybe you feel like you're being watched. Um, these are, you know, might be nature spirits, might be elemental spirits but also might just be um, a spirit of place that is the aggregate of all the many energies um, of people over time who have gone in reverence to that space. So a perfect example of this is the Chalice Well in Glastonbury. Anyone who's ever visited the Chalice Well, you know that you walk up to the edge of that well And there's almost like a breath issuing forth from it, a cool breath, uh, a mist rising in a way out of that well. It's mesmerizing. That That well is protected. There is nothing that is going to happen to that well. That well has for however long symbolized particular holiness of um, Britain and her people. And it's got its own guardian. And 
there's, of course, you know, kind of the Lady of Avalon, who I perceive as a goddess, and she's very present there. But I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about a spirit presence that is there. And interestingly, on the subject of whether or not it's ever taken a corporeal form, uh, when I was in Glastonbury, I had um, a very interesting experience with the chalice well once, where I was sitting there in meditation, and this young man came to me, and he just sort of sat down and sat, I mean, a real one, not not a <laughs> not a spirit, um, a real human, corporeal, physical being, young man, comes over and he sits down next to me and we didn't know each other. I had never seen him before. But he just started to talk to me as though we had known each other forever. And he said, I wanted to know if you would be willing to take my picture if I walk up to that tree and stand there. And I said, sure, no problem. And I took his picture and then he came back and he said, here's what happened. I had a dream five days ago, and in the dream, I was here at this place, the chalice well. I've never been here before, though, but I could see all of this exactly in the dream the way it is now. And there was an old man sitting on that bench by that tree where you just took the photo of me. And in my dream, he was looking at me, and I felt afraid to go talk to him. I felt nervous but I knew I had to go talk to him. And there were all these other people here and they were having some kind of a ceremony. And I wasn't sure if I should try to go through the ceremony or walk up to him or what I should do. So what I did was in the dream, I walked up to him in the middle of the ceremony and he took me by the hand. He shook my hand and he said, thank you for coming. You are going to become the guardian of this place. It, my time of being the guardian of this place is done, and now it is your time to guard this place. Guard it well. And then the old man disappeared, and then I became the old man, he said. And I was the one sitting on the bench by the tree. So I woke up from that dream, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. He was from Germany. And he said, I woke up from that dream, and I couldn't stop thinking about it, And then the next day, one of my friends mentioned that she was planning a trip to come to Glastonbury. And so I told her I needed to get some time off from work. And I told my, and could I come? And she said, yes. And so I don't have anywhere to stay tonight. I don't know where I'm going to stay. I just arrived in town. She drove into town and I just came right here. And I don't know what's going to happen next. And I just sat there and looked at him. I was so, so amazed at that powerful story. And he sort of just sat there and we looked at each other and then he kind of closed his eyes and he went into his meditation. And after a time, I got up and I left. So a guardian can have had physical form, but might not. And it definitely is a spirit of place. Now, a guide is a tutelary being, a a spiritual teacher in the unseen world. And um, a really great book that I read called The Woman in the Shaman's Body by Barbara Barbara Tedlock describes an experience that um, a young woman had uh, when she got her calling to become a shaman. And 
this is important because the um, the way that the spirits call to a shaman is often through this kind of a thing or through a shamanic sickness or another um, you know another kind of a, an incident that happens that's of note and it's often the introduction to a tutelary being who will become one's spiritual teacher in the unseen world and sometimes one's spiritual spouse in the unseen world. But again, not the same as a goddess god. Um, Definitely its own class of being. And in this story, um, in the book, this young girl describes, you know, going and walking, literally walking into a forest to a particular tree and feeling like she had to commune with that tree and laying down underneath that tree and having a nap. And in that nap, a spirit, uh, she was welcomed into the hall of a spiritual guide. And this guide taught her all of the manners of disease and actually introduced her to the spirits that caused the diseases and had her... um, make offerings to each of the spirits that caused the diseases, at which time the spirits that caused the diseases would reveal to her what was the cure for the disease. And they would then give her the herb, a sample of the herb that was the cure. And the spirit teacher had her prepare a little bundle of these herbs. And then you know, after what seemed like a very long time of being in the spirit realm, she returned back to the earthly realm and she woke up and the bundle was still with her. So, and in it were all the herbs that she had collected in her journey with the spirit. So a tutelary spirit is, you know, like a guide, um, you know, a teacher from the unseen world, and again, could be a master, could be um, a, a, a non, had never been corporeal, just an enlightened uh, being, but also could be an ancestor. And, and here's one other story to kind of illustrate it. A few weeks ago, I had a dream that, the t- so I have in my Tibetan Dharma practice, a teacher who I work with. Um, interestingly, we don't work on scripture or practices really together very much. Mostly we work on creating conditions for the liberation of all beings through charitable works. And so she had a teacher before her who she loved and um, he's he's a beloved teacher of the Dharma here in the West, but also in Tibet, His Holiness Dujam Rinpoche. And so in my dream, His Holiness Tuchum Rinpoche um, appeared and then, uh, and he was wearing sunglasses because he, he always wore sunglasses. And there's lots of famous pictures of him in sunglasses. And uh, there's actually a statue of him in his, one of his main monasteries in Tibet. And the statue is wearing sunglasses. Um, so it's kind of this funny, cute homage to this ancestor. In the dream, he came to me and he showed me himself and he was wearing his sunglasses and then the dream morphed and I saw my teacher Lama Deshen Yeshe Wangwa, and she was wearing sunglasses 
And then the dream morphed, and I was wearing sunglasses. So I woke up from this dream, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay, okay, Your Holiness, I'm listening. Well, you know, you're you're being a spirit teacher to me. Obviously, was once an ancestor, um, but being a tutelary being, I'm I'm interested in what you what you want to share with me. I'm now paying attention. And so I printed out a picture of him wearing his sunglasses, and I put it on a candle. And I put it on the ancestor altar at, at the sacred well where it's been burning every day. And I've just been honoring him and acknowledging him as part of my spiritual lineage a bit more regularly. And within three days, I got an email in my inbox. One of his remaining living students was going to be conferring uh, an initiation, an empowerment to a practice that His Holiness Dujo Rinpoche developed while in a visionary state. And it was the Kandro Norla Wealth Practice. And it was all about bringing wealth into the world for the benefit of all beings. So I went and I attended the empowerment because obviously it, it was like I, it, had a, it had been labeled. You know, it was like, come do this thing. <laughs> you know, it's His Holiness Dujo Rinpoche's mind treasure go and experience this so i went and while i was sitting in this beautiful meditation hall here in alameda where i go sometimes origin origin dorjiden which is a beautiful beautiful big meditation temple um very huge beautiful golden brass statues i mean it's it's quite magnificent and um, while I was in meditation receiving the empowerment, I felt a, a, a presence descend into my mind and I lifted my eyes and there up high on the wall, just to the side of this huge statue and on the other side of a bunch of other statues, is this little tiny framed picture of His Holiness Jujum Rinpoche, which I had not noticed before. It was kind of hidden amidst the opulence in the room. And and there it was. And it was the same picture that was on the candle that was at the sacred, that is still burning at the sacred well. So a tutelary being, a guide, can have been an ancestor. But similarly, they can be a non-corporeal uh, being that never took form, but is more like a guide that you just know is there because of either they speak to you or you have visions or you have dreams or you have other significant psychic phenomena. But they're not the same thing exactly as a goddess or a god. And then similar to what I asked um, previously, are there particular techniques, tools, uh, things like herbs or crystals that can be used to identify a guardian or guide for ourselves as well as to connect with and work with them? And even uh, in addition to that, how do we know when to call on or connect with or work with a particular type of spirit or entity um, for something that we may be thinking we need that? Well, in in terms of the guardian, uh, in terms of the guides, um, Really, I do think the best 
thing is to follow the adage, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Um, it's, it's well documented in shamanic cultures that um, people who were not seeking out a guide still receive their guide, and that people who are seeking them um, you know, will also occasionally receive a guide, but that there's literally no rushing it. So you just, you just sort of have to say to the spirit realm, um, I'm ready, and then, again, you have to keep your wards up because there may be malevolent spirits that very much want to be your teacher but aren't going to be serving your highest good or the highest good of humanity. So, in, for example, um, Tibetan practice, we might think of this uh, term jalpo. Jalpo are demon kings. Uh, demon king usually... Uh, appears in dreams or visions is very well manicured and refined smooth and you get kind of a power vibe but also like a dangerous vibe from them but very like you feel very magnetized to them and if you're inexperienced or if you have um, not encountered one of these beings before, you might actually think of that as a teacher because you kind of have this feeling of excitement and a little bit of danger and they seem refined and well-groomed and that's not always a benevolent teacher, you know, just the same way that if we, <clears throat> you know, walk down the street in Wall Street, not everybody wearing a suit is a good guy. So um, you have to you have to start to learn to discern between these and um, having effective shielding practices and having people that you can connect with and talk with this about reading books on the subject of, of um, spirit guides. As I mentioned, the woman in the shaman's body by Barbara Tedlock delves significantly into the tutelary relationship. Um, so that's, you know, that's, I think, an important thing. A guardian can't really be called upon. They just are there. They're the spirit of a place. So you can't really kind of summon them out of their place as much as you can go to them in their place. But for both guardians and guides, I suggest um, having, if you know you're going to go somewhere that has a spirit of place, so for example the Chalice Well in Glastonbury. Um, I have, the first time I was there, I was given a little stone heart. A woman walked up to me and just handed me a little stone heart. And now when I go and visit there, which I've now been a couple of times, I bring that little heart with me because it, to me, symbolizes the spirit of the place. And when I go there, I hold it and I utilize it as a way to deepen my connection to the spirit of place so that I can align my own vibration with that spirit of place. And then I can carry the spirit of place out. But the spirit of place, the guardian that lives there, obviously stays there. They have a job to do. So even just carrying a clear quartz crystal to a place and inviting the spirit of place to imprint in the quartz would be an effective technique. Um, another thing that you could try to do is to bring an offering. Coins, a lock of your hair, ribbons loosely tied, um, you know, small petition, papers, things like that that you would place there 
um, especially being conservative of the natural environment. That's that's one way you can work with a guardian of a, of a place. With a guide, one of the things that I do is I have various different crystals, and I haven't just picked like any one type. It's more like I I kind of look at a stone that I have you know, before I'm about to go and connect with, say, if I was going to go, you know, when I went and I did this empowerment um, of the mind treasure of His Holiness, Dujam Rinpoche, I brought a special crystal that I looked at. I knew I was going to go. I knew I was going to this wealth empowerment. I knew I was going to connect with a teacher who's, who was taught by this great teacher. And so I I picked out a special stone. It, you know, it was just um, a piece of aragonite, not necessarily associated with wealth, not necessarily always, not necessarily associated with His Holiness Dujam Rinpoche, not necessarily associated with Tibet at all. But I brought that crystal with me, and I held it during the empowerment so that I could imprint the empowerment upon the crystal with my own energy, my own vibration. And so this way, later on, when I work with that crystal, it will carry the um, energy of the, of the empowerment and, and hopefully the wisdom of the teacher. So if you have a guide that you're working with, you might consider assigning them a stone that you hold while you're working with them, or if it's a dream visitor, Maybe you keep a special crystal under your pillow for those to, to record those dream visitations. And then later you can hold that crystal to try to access the memory of the dream because we all know how dreams have that funny way of getting foggy over time. So you can sort of try to hold that crystal and see if it can help you access the finer points of the dream. Um, another way to work with a, a guide is to make an offering of your work in the world. So um, I do things in the name of the tutelary beings who visit me. Um, like I feel very guided by the spirit of of the reindeer. And so I do workings based in the cultures that cherish the reindeer, shamanic cultures of the circumpolar peoples. And one of the things that I do in honor of the great um, spirit of the reindeer is I do these um, shamanic peace tree ceremonies with my friends Karen and Thina. And we practice this, um, you know, Barisa. It's the um, peace tree ceremony of basically bringing a tree to life and turning it into um, a beacon of peace especially in a place where there's been loss or grieving or um, tragedy. Um, and we invite the spirits that are in that place to utilize this tree as a road upon which they travel. So in this way, I'm honoring, even though it's not, I'm not specifically doing a reindeer thing, right? I'm still honoring the culture that honors the reindeer by working with this ceremony. And, and I think about how doing this shows my own migratory patterns on the earth. Everywhere I go, I leave this little 
uh, you know, this little symbol, this tree, just the same way a reindeer might uh, rub its antlers against a tree and leave a mark. And someone who's experienced with following reindeer herds could walk through a forest and see the deer have been here, the deer have been there, the deer have been there. Um, so those are kind of some of my personal techniques. And, and, and there are many different ways. I mean, there's many different ways to access these beings, but these are just a few. Well, and obviously this is a very vast and broad <laughs> subject. Um, but I think one of the important things that has come through for me is for for anyone wanting to connect with or work with any of these kind of spirits or entities, sure, we can learn a lot by reading books or hearing other people teach or talk about these things, et cetera. But ultimately, it's about doing our own personal work to connect with and see how they're going to come through for us and then how it is they want to work with us rather than thinking it has to somehow follow the way of how we read something is supposed to be in a particular tradition or that kind of thing. So I, I think, again, it comes back to the willingness to do our own personal work <laughs> um, yeah. rather than than just having it told to us how to do it or having it just kind of coming to us without us having to do anything and, and laying it all out for us um, without any effort on our part. I think that's I think that's very well put. I I think that truly the mysteries are seeking us just as much as we are seeking them. And you really have to be willing to entertain the mystery and find your way. And be be disciplined and diligent. You can't just sit down once a year on Samhain or Halloween or this time of year, uh, you know, in front of an altar and then think that somehow that's going to be the, the end all be all of creating the connection and being able to do the work. There has to be ongoing work, ongoing connection and ongoing effort if we want to both maintain as well as deepen what it is that they have to offer us and how we can work with them. I, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's, you know, think about how much fun a dinner party is when the guests don't know one another at all versus uh, how much fun a dinner party is when the guests have at least a passing familiarity with one another. So much easier, so much more fluid. Which means it's a perfect time of the year for a dumb supper. <laughs> one of my favorite practices and that is something that I do once a year very diligently um, in fact in Come As You Are Pagan Congregation we um, host we have it's one of the things that the students do to help um, the the um, teachers out is to prepare a dumb supper and and then the, the teachers and initiators and the initiates who are going through the path get to sit down and have a dumb supper together. And it's really, really rewarding. It's a nice way to communally connect with our, with our ancestors and those who have gone before in community, but without it becoming silly. But that's just like if we have the big family dinner at a holiday once a year, if we don't make the effort to, call or email or connect throughout the year, that one time of the year is not going to create this 
the same type of connection and experience. Exactly. Why would you? Why would I come to your party? You don't call. You don't write. May I never? May 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 I never have to work with any Jewish grandmother, ancestors, or spirit guides? Huh? <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> I'm very grateful for my ancient, ancient <laughs> spirit grandmothers. <laughs> so as we move to close this conversation. Um, well, first, I just want to remind people that they can find out more about you at wayoftherabbits.com, both um, teachings, events, as well as your blog and your podcast and everything are there. And if anyone is in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, your class on Ancestors, Ghost Guardians, and Guides is taking place for the next three Wednesday nights. Uh, at the Sacred Well in Oakland, and um, they they can come to one class or they can come to all of the classes. It's not required that they come to all of the classes. I think that's correct, yes? Um, yes, and we also can have people uh, come via video at a distance if they like. Yes, so they can either go to the sacredwell.com website uh, and send an email, or they can call the store and um, ask about arranging to do that if they are at a distance but want to join the class online. Um, so yeah. something I do at the end of each uh, conversation is pose a question from a previous guest that um, not knowing who would be asked the question. So you would be asked the question from a previous guest, and then I'll ask you for a question to pose to a future guest. Okay. Um so the the question that is from a previous guest is from my guest last one of my guests last month named Rowan, and the question for you is, what does the color red sound like? Oh, it uh, the color red sounds like a get ready like that <laughs> like a popping sound. Um, also, wild applause. All right. And then do you have a question you would like to pose to anyone? Uh, well, to a future guest, <laughs> not to anyone. but <laughs> Yes, um, I'd like to pose to your future guest. Um, let's see. What seeds are you planting now that you will harvest next? All right. Excellent. Well, Yeshe Rabbit, thank you very much for having taken time out of your Sunday to be here and share with all of us um, much information and insight into the spirit realms that hopefully people can reflect on as well as put into practice and maybe use at this time of year to start diving deeper into their connection with those realms and finding what what on the other side wants to perhaps come through and work with them. So thank you very much for being here and, and doing this. It was a real pleasure. It was so, so nice to be here. I'm very grateful. And I did have, if I may, one more plug I wanted to put, which is um, that right now, I am helping to coordinate the fundraising campaign for The Wild Hunt, which is an online pagan newspaper and um, 
uh, journalism portal. And um, we have until November 1st, we're looking to raise our budget of $15,000 to pay the staff writer or to pay the, the team of writers and to um, pay for all the technology that sustains the site. So if you are interested in supporting the wild hunt and keeping pagan journalism alive, please go to www.wildhunt.org and you can click on the link to go support our campaign. I'm really grateful that you had me here today. I see it was really nice to talk to you. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and um, for if you are um, listening to the live broadcast, you can stay tuned. We have the astrology update coming up next. And if you would like to get a reading, you can get into the queue for that by calling 646-716-5510. Or you can Skype in or connect in from the show page as well. Uh, so I encourage you to do that if you would like to get a reading. So we will be right back after a quick break with our astrology update. And that will be followed by your chance for a reading. So stay tuned. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. Greetings, Psychonauts, and welcome to Ignition Switch, Xenophobia in a Planetizing World, which will be this month's installment of Flying Punk Rock Unicorn Astrology. (laughs) 
Xenophobia is defined as an irrational dislike of people from foreign countries. It seems to be an overriding theme of late. A cursory glance at news media bears this point out. It seems xenophobia is the elephant in the room. It flies in the face of an increasingly international world that must begin to operate on a global scale to address salient to address salient problems that will not go away with local or national action alone. Whether due to immigration, migration, or other movement of masses of people will ultimately have an effect on population, population matrix and cultural diffusion. This is where the intersection of converging crises begins to explode into the social realm. It is these migrations that are stoking the xenophobia we are seeing in the political sphere. Astrologically, this is all very pertinent in that the symbol sets uncannily reflect some of these less-than-enlightened tendencies and also provide some impetus for how we might advance beyond this pervasive, pervasive myopic thinking. First, a quick overview. Venus remains direct in Leo this month, and so we know her here as the Red Queen. This has many implications. The most salient one is that this archetype usually speaks to issues of pe people speaking truth to power. In this sign, the issues of humans' relations to one another will come into focus. Issues of sexuality and autonomy and power differentials surface. What's more is Jupiter and Mars are here as well, and they will also make aspects that have the potential to catalyze a focus on these issues and may even spur them coming to a head. The other dominant theme is Virgo and the issues of building a sustainable world system. With the Sun and Mercury spending most of the month in this sign, touching off the Virgo signature will be a new moon on the 13th, on the 13th which begins its journey in Virgo and culminates in the full moon on the 27th in the opposite sign of Pisces. Saturn undergoes a major transition on the 17th when he leaves fair-minded and diplomatic Libra for the decidedly more tumultuous shores of Scorpio. Whatever has not been resolved in Libra will be in Scorpio and unavoidable. Here is the October redshift. October 10th, we will see flashpoints. Venus will be in Leo, squaring Saturn in Libra. This is a symbolic, this aspect is, a, is symbolic of apparent geopolitics. Venus here is the symbol of people facing desperate situations. They are seeking asylum, and in Leo, it has a headlining role on the world stage. Saturn is playing the role of governments and reactionary elements, such as various anti-immigrant groups. In Libra, it symbolizes civil society, and it seems civil society is responding in a very uncivil way. A square is a tense aspect, and it translates to a breakdown in the capacity to relate. The issues at hand are a cover for the real tension, which is more related to xenophobia and a collective fear of changing demographics. A change in the natural culture and the survival of cultural institutions. It is not surprising that these, isu these issues come up with social crisis and are reflective of themes dealt with in a Saturn through Libra transit. When squared to Venus, it will reveal weak points in policy where civil issues have not been addressed. 
The square represents an opportunity to take a more diplomatic stance and actually work through these difficulties and come up with policies that better reflect the changing realities of a world in transition and facing crises partly generated by collective actions, bad government governance, and natural instabilities. This applies at a global level as well as a personal one. It's time to restructure the agreements we've made with others and find ones that better serve mutual objectives or to cut ties where this is not possible. The following day, October 11th, we see explosive conditions. Jupiter in Leo trines Pluto in Sagittarius and the Sun in Virgo sits in opposition to Uranus in Pisces. Activating the tense aspect from the day prior, Jupiter steps in to amplify the situation and turn it into a larger-than-life affair, in conspiracy with Pluto. These symbols in harmony will symbolize core issues in need of change becoming glaringly obvious. It is hoped some existing leaders who understand these connections will come into prominence and take the reins, although I'm not counting on it. The other feature is how technology plays into the mix, which is Uranus and Pisces. The Internet is the medium of our age and will continue to bring these issues into crystal clarity. Individually, we must look to how we have ordered our lives. What areas are we overlooking and not creating contingencies for? Which leads to October 13th, a time of discernment with the new moon in Virgo. I call this one Hermit Moon as Virgo is the sign in which the Mercury rulership is said to be in its Hermit phase. The theme is discernment, a quality that goes beyond mere criticism. It is the ability to make qualitative decisions based on a careful analysis. Another Virgoan feature is recognizing the connection to the animal body and the planetary body and acting accordingly. This lunation begins with a need to discern and also a need to express healthy, natural bodily desires. Which brings us to a sequence of events occurring starting October 15th and culminating on October 17th, which I have given the name Debacle. Mars in Leo will trine Pluto in Sagittarius on the 15th. Venus in Leo will oppose Neptune in Aquarius on the 16th. And Mars will conjunct Jupiter in Leo on the 17th, also followed by a Saturn ingress into Scorpio. These 72 hours will touch off other aspects that have dominated the days prior, and each speaks to an intensification of subjects that have been covered. Saturn ingresses into Scorpio, and there now becomes an intense focus on matters of governance, as Scorpio is the symbol set for collective governance and power. The themes feel like sex and surveillance and deep transformations at fundamental levels of collective power. It is, all, all enter, after all, entering the sign of sex, death, and politics. It represents a moment in time when a real difference can be made and the conditions are certainly ripe for any of these transform deep transformations to occur, and the world is certainly primed for radical departure. The Saturn ingress is made all the more intense with a fiery and fierce Mars-Jupiter conjunction. There are some astrologers who allege that these, that these combinations can signal violence. Ideally, instead of more violence, we will see solutions and strong leadership. This is what Leo tends to suggest. To add fuel to this fire, Venus will oppose Neptune, and there is a collective outpouring of compassion directed at the teeming masses. This is a problematic situation in that it is a clouded perception. 
the internet, Neptune and Aquarius, which connects us. But the people on the ground continue to suffer because often the activism done via the net often doesn't have much practical value and is mostly symbolic gestures. The aspect is asking us individual, individually to be more involved in the process of world changing and avoid the purely ephemeral symbolic acts. A genuine reckoning is at hand, even if only within ourselves. The Mars-Pluto trine could signal a collective backlash against the xenophobic policy directions that many developed governments are taking. There are certainly inklings of this spattered throughout media reports. Acts of kindness and vision have been noted in this time of crisis. That said, the anti-immigration stance could actually amplify and turn itself into a real media spectacle and be a source of embarrassment for governments and a target of intense criticism from more progressive segments of society. That seems moot at this point, but it could really go thermo thermonuclear by this time. Figuratively, not literally. These very intense aspects will then carry us over to the 22nd when we will experience Mercury in Virgo, Square Pluto, and Sagittarius, which, to borrow a term from George Orwell's 1984, feels very much like double speak. These squares between these two can lead to a hyper-paranoia that is unparalleled. One can become suspicious and dig so deep that they begin to make up ulterior motive where none exists. With Saturn and Scorpio and surveillance and secrets being on the agenda, this tendency becomes much more prevalent, and there is a need to guard against it. In the collective realm, it manifests as governments and officials attempting to squelch out criticism and cover their tracks. Thankfully, in an age of increasing transparency, this is getting harder to do, and the conflict between reality and perception is getting harder to pull off, and the pendulum is swinging in favor of the former. The very next day, on the 23rd, Venus and Leo trine Pluto and Sagittarius could signal humanitarian crisis. While only being a transit that lasts the day, it is wise to consider that it might be the spark that lasts a lifetime. This is a recurring transit, and each time it occurs, it will strengthen that which was begun. On the world stage, it would mean that we begin to take seriously that the suffering of others is akin to our own, and we begin to enact policy that reflects a vastly more interconnected world. Individually, we can look to our own lives and recognize how our indifference may be permitting unnecessary suffering to continue. We are transformed by our dim, deep, deep and intense links to one another. Which brings us to another transit two days out from that one on the 25th, which remind us, reminds us of our interdependence. In this case, Venus will conjunct Jupiter and Leo, and Mercury in Virgo will oppose Uranus and Pisces. These aspects don't much reflect the world we have, but more the world that could be. There are those who say utopian thought is impossible or impractical because we are dealing with imperfect humanity. Here's the fly in that ointment. Many of the milestones of civilization began as utopian impossibilities, and now they are taken for granted. I would like to suggest that the same can be true now given our current situation. Humanity has been on a centuries-long trajectory towards increasing interdependence. It has not been a deliberate process, just extraordinary circumstance 
has facilitated this drift towards equilibrium. That said, that said, it can now be stated quite confidently that that process is now becoming increasingly more deliberate. We are planetizing and beginning to find a common ground. Not that there won't be setbacks along the way. The conjunction of, in Leo is a beautiful symbol of this logic as it symbolizes us getting personal with one another. The Mercury-Uranus interaction speaks to cultivating an ability to rapidly change our mind and dominant mindsets in favor of new evidence and with Mercury in Virgo it is deliberate and coming from a detailed analysis that has carefully considered the ecological and collective impacts of decision making tempered by the Uranus and Pisces understanding of having a more cosmic perspective. This ability to quickly change mindset is valuable in a rapidly changing world and acts as a counterbalance to the atavistic mentality we see many of our policymakers currently aligning themselves with. The 21st century demands an adeptness at being able to learn and then unlearn concepts in an instant. It is a quality that needs to be cultivated in each of us and in the mass of us. A more advanced world calls for more advanced thinking. October 27th brings a sense of culmination with a full moon in Pisces. The month's lunation will culminate with an ingress into the Virgo's astrological counterpart, Pisces. This is a lunation that can bring the feel of cosmic scale feelings. If Pisces is the vast starry sky and Virgo the observer on the ground, then this lunation has brought with it an awareness of our broader place in the cosmos and also a sense of qualitative discernment which allows us to see the profound in the profane. Which, of course, brings us to October 31st, which we know as Halloween, or if you follow the witch's calendar, it's Samhain. This is a time to reflect on our ancestry and our roots. Our ancestors are honored and we contemplate our own mortality. If you'd like to learn more about this month's aspects, please, con please, please, please read my blog, which can be found at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. Again, that's flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. I also do readings. You can find me on Facebook, uh, at Prometheus uh, Astrology for the Space Age. Thanks again for joining me for another month in Flying Punk Rock Unicorn Astrology. I'll see you all next month. And in the meantime, keep your eyes on the skies. Listening to Revolution with host Tysi Lutmers on Firefly Willows L I V E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with High C. Enjoy the show.
welcome back. This is Hi C, and you're listening to Revolution, and we've reached that point in the show where you have a chance to receive a reading live on the air. This is a segment that's available on every show, uh, both Revolution, which I host on the second Sundays, as well as the show Amethyst Oracle that I a co-host on the second Tuesdays, which will be coming up this Tuesday. Um, there's always a segment for you to receive a reading. Plus, the fourth Sunday of each month, we offer the chance for a whole show where you get the chance to call in and receive a reading as well um, from myself as well as from other various hosts and sometimes special guest readers. Um, so I would encourage you to check those out. And if you want to listen to past shows, you can always do so here on Blog Talk Radio. The archives for all of the shows that air uh, are available there, as well as on iTunes. You can find them. Uh, just do a quick search for Firefly Willows, and it'll come right up. And you can listen, download, or subscribe to hear all of the shows at your leisure. So we're going to go ahead and go to a caller who has been patiently waiting to receive a reading. This is someone calling from area code 858. Are you there, caller in area code 858? Hello, hi, C. It's Oksana. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm okay. Actually, not so well. In the last month, September, October, I've had many issues in all different areas of life. Problems with my job, problems with the clothes, well, with the love relationship, and... I don't know how to ask At this point, I'm contemplating a decision to resign from the job. Do you see that actually my life can can be will be improved in any area? I cannot deal with just one problem after another, not just job, but love, relationship, friendship. Friendship and love is the same. It's kind of romantic relationship. So I don't know how to phrase this question, but do you see any improvement for me in the, I don't know how many months your terror shows, um, two, three months, or six months, I just don't know. What's the day and month of your birth? It's May 31st. I'm a Gemini. Um, so one thing I would say is that uh, some of what you've been experiencing, especially since you're a Gemini, which is an Earth, uh, which is sorry, which is an air sign, um, you are probably being pretty hard hit by the Mercury retrograde that we were in because the Mercury retrogrades this year are in air signs, which means that they're particularly challenging. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, also, it means that anybody that is an air sign is probably going to be more affected than other people are. So uh, the nice thing is this weekend we come out of the Mercury retrograde. Um, today we start uh, Jupiter trine Pluto, which um, is setting up the next few weeks uh, and basically the month of October as a far more um, positive month, a far more energized in a good way month. Um, it may take a few days for us to kind of shake off what's been going on, but over the next few days, there's going to be a lot more clarity that starts to happen for us in general. There's also going to be um, probably a, a renewed sense of energy towards 
moving forward towards making things happen, um, as well as a lessening of fear around taking some actions uh, that are going to help play into seeing October feel by the end of the month, that it's a much better month and that we're making progress compared to probably what September felt like, especially because of the Mercury retrograde. So if nothing else, I think that that, uh, in a general sense, gives us some optimism and some hope for what's going to be happening in contrast to what you've just been experiencing very recently as well. Um, the, the, you know, I, I, the, the first card that comes up here is the two of wands reversed. That would indicate that it is time probably to, uh, end or separate from some sort of partnership or agreement. Um, and reversing this card says that it's time for action now rather than waiting to see what other options there may be. So if there are areas of your life where there has been particular difficulty in terms of who or what you have been in partnership with, and that can mean personal relationships, that can mean business uh, or work and that kind of thing, there is a sense that we've reached the point where it's time to separate and move forward and move on rather than to continue to stay in something, thinking it's going to get better, hoping or holding out for it to get better, or even thinking we're going to stay here and suffer until something better comes along versus I need to take action now in order to move away from this in order for my ability to encounter something better to actually happen rather than thinking something better is going to come along to take me away from this. That's followed by the Ten of Cups reverse, which really just shows probably that you're feeling very emotionally drained. Um, also, Ten of Cups, traditionally, Ten of Cups is a card of marriage and children, and reversing it kind of becomes a card of separation or divorce or that kind of thing. So it's a, just a reiteration that we are at a point where there are things happening in your life in different areas that say, where I no longer feel happy, where there are things or situations that are completely draining me, it's time for me to separate or divorce myself from those rather than continuing to hold out false hope or to be over-idealistic or to create unrealistic expectation that somehow it's going to fix itself, somehow it's going to change, somehow it's going to get better versus facing the reality of something and saying, then it's time for me to take action and move away from it rather than to stay in it or around it. Um, that's followed by the Five of Cups. And the Five of Cups is the card of disappointment, which again, I think it just reiterates one more time that you're at a point of feeling very um, pessimistic, feeling very hopeless, feeling very sad, feeling very disappointed. That next to the Ten of Cups reverse someone or something has probably fallen off a pedestal and disappointed us, has not lived up to expectation, um, has not followed through on promises and that kind of thing. And instead of crying over spilt milk, it's time to say, okay, you know what? That has happened. They have not lived up to expectation. They have disappointed me. They have not followed through on promises, etc. Let me move on rather than staying stuck in the past or holding on to things that represent the past, it's time for me to find something new 
rather than to hold on to or stay in something old with the hope that it might somehow change or be different moving forward. So then if we start to look into the future, if you will, uh, the short-term position is the next one to three months, so basically between now and the end of the year. And we have a card that's um, here called the Herald of Wands, um, which would kind of be the Knight of Wands. So the Knight of Wands, this, this is a card of speed. It's a card of travel. So once again, it's reiterating that it's time for action, that we can't hesitate or wait any longer. It's time for us to act and act soon, act and act quickly to move forward and to move on rather than to stay put. Um, it is a card of travel, so there is that sense of moving forward, moving on. It can also be very literal in the sense that it may be time for us to move. Um, now, whether that means move from where we live, move from a job, but there's a sense of forward momentum. Uh, it, there may be things like if we were changing jobs, perhaps looking for something that allows us greater freedom of movement, uh, maybe a job that actually in, in involves travel in some way. Um, but overall, it just says that between now and the end of the year, we need to really get things moving, get things going, be moving forward, be moving onward, and not stay in or stay stuck or or um, uh, attached to people, situations, and things that are draining us, that have disappointed us, that are not living up to expectation, that are not um, uh, fulfilling what it is that they promised to do for us or that they promised to be for us in the way that we had entered into them and envisioned them contributing to us or contributing to our lives. Beyond that, uh, we have the Three of Cups, which is a really nice card to see here, um, because Three of Cups is actually a card that represents things like joy, uh, celebration. So it's this enjoyment of life. It's feeling connected to the people and places around me. Um, it's, it's feeling as if I'm in a good place surrounded by people and things that are supportive, etc. The fact that this follows that Knight of Wands tells us that the it's something we have to move towards. It's something that is awaiting us ahead of, or think of it like it's waiting for us down the road. It's not here where we're at and it's not behind us. So we don't want to go backwards. We don't need to stay where we're at. If we can start moving forward, especially between now and the end of the year, we're going to find that we more quickly than not um, uh, are in a better place, are feeling more um, enjoyment from life, of feeling more surrounded by the kind of people and places and things that we um, enjoy being around and that seem to really connect with us and that um, support us and encourage us rather than things that drain us and, and bring us down. Um, Three of Cups coming here a lot of times based on the previous cards that we talked about um, would indicate that we're probably surrounded by toxic people or toxic situations, very unhealthy people or unhealthy situations, and therefore we need to move out, move forward, and move on rather than putting up with uh, suffering through. And, and sometimes that means, like when you mentioned friendships, that may mean uh, this person has been my friend for X number of years. It's like, okay, but maybe 
it's no longer healthy to be around them rather than thinking we're somehow obligated to put up with it because we're friends and we've been friends for a while or because we're family or whatever the situation is. Same with work. We don't have to just put up with, you know, it's like we can put up with long enough and then it's time to move on. If it's not changing, then it's time for us to take responsibility for changing our situation and our exposure rather than for us to keep suffering and blaming and waiting for other people and other things to change in some way. So it's a very positive sense of what's to come. Um, This would tell me that probably it would only take a few months for you to find uh, something much more um, supportive, much more enjoyable, much more satisfying. Um, And the Three of Cups says that Utilizing your network is probably going to be very beneficial, so reaching out is probably going to be conducive to finding things. Um, But there's a lot here, just like looking at this, it says whether it's friendships, relationship, um, work, all all of it, it, it may just all be culminating at the same time, where it says all of these things are coming together to say it's time to move forward, it's time to move on and leave all of these things behind me, because there's something better, more satisfying, happier, more supportive, healthier for me that is waiting for me, but it's only because I move to it uh, and do it sooner rather than later. That's how I get there. That's how I have that in my life rather than thinking that anything around me is somehow going to magically change or become different. And I just have to hold out through the suffering for that to happen. And this is saying, stop, stop, sitting in a place of suffering and start doing something to move away from it, even if it means cutting ties or moving away from people or a job or that kind of thing. And hi, C, may I ask you, so you're saying cutting ties in terms of romantic relationship, you feel that the person wants to cut ties or it's, it's up to my decision? Because with the job, I understand I can make a decision to cut ties because they don't want to fire me. So if I want to make a decision, I have to resign voluntarily. But uh, with a romantic relationship, I do not understand if the person really wants to tie, to cut these ties with me. So or it's, it's up to well, my this, decision. Well, what th- this is saying that it, it likely is not a very healthy, supportive relationship. It's not giving you what you need and, in a sense, what you deserve from a relationship. And therefore, it's time for you to recognize that and take action of your own accord to start saying, it's time for me to go after and find what it is that I really want and what is really right for me and what will give me what it is that I'm looking for from a relationship. So stop waiting around for the other person to do something. Stop waiting around for them to break up with you. But instead, take personal initiative and personal action to say, I deserve better than this, I can have better than this, and now it's time for me to take action to move everything out of the way and move away from whatever it is that might be getting in the way of that so that I can act on moving towards and finding and creating and having what it is that I'm really wanting, needing, and deserving in my life when it comes to relationship. So it's it's not so much about... But it's not about the other person. You have to stop worrying about this other person and what they want and what they think and what they're going to do. You have to start recognizing 
I'm not getting what I need from this relationship. I have to stop putting myself through this, and it's time for me to take action to do something to move away from it in order to move to something that is in my much better interest. Well, I see it was actually it was some benefit, so I cannot say it was completely non-beneficial, but do you feel that the person actually wants to break up with me because it was not my intention to break up this friendship? It was a benefit, and it's better to have friend, as you know, opposed to not to have friend, because I may end up having, if if to deal with this like this, people may have no friends at the end, because everybody has their flaws and negative sides, but, you know, every friendship has some benefits, especially well, if it's the, a long the- the, the the three of cups can say they can still perhaps be part of our circle of friends, but they have to stop being such a focus or such a primary friendship that we um, put so much energy into. Mm-hmm. So romantically, this would certainly say that it's time to break up and move on. Friendship-wise, they may, romantically... This says it's time to break up and move on. We don't need to have romantic um, entanglement here any longer. Um, Friendship-wise, they may still be part of our circle of friends, but they won't necessarily be the person that we spend all of our time with or the majority of our time with. They will be someone we still have a relationship with and that we still see from time to time and that kind of thing, but their, their primary place is going to shift to more of a one of many rather than primary. I think that the person was mostly interested in the romantic part than just well, friendships. Well, th- that is highly um, uh, uh, the cards here would say that that is highly recommended against. Any any sort of romantic involvement is is extremely um, recommended against. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's very hard to find a new job also these days, especially I'm almost retirement age. So, well, the, um, but the, the nice thing is, though, with the Knight of Wands here, it, it, it'll probably come quickly. Now, sometimes the Knight of Wands can be there that says we're not uh, locked into one particular job. So it may be that you become more of like a consultant uh, or a freelancer where you, you are working for multiple people and you you move. The, the idea would be in, in motion or a movement rather than just set in one place. So, you know, thinking in terms of perhaps becoming a consultant that has numerous places I work with rather than one place I work for would um, perhaps be more conducive to finding something. But the Knight of Wands being here really does encourage us. And the fact that the Two of Wands is reversed says that taking action now, we're likely to see fairly quick within within just a, a few months. Like Knight of Wands here would point to the next uh, fire sign, which would be Sagittarius, which would be December. <laughs> so by the end of the year, I mean, if you started now, by the end of the year, you'd probably be well on your way into some sort of new work situation. Uh, and the Three of Cups is also a card that can represent three months. So there is a sense that it's only going to take probably 
uh, up to three months for you to find something once you put all of your attention and energy into beginning the search and, and looking for something. And really employ your network. Reach out to people you know. Uh, you know, um, let other people know that you're looking for something, et cetera, because there's likely something that's going to come from that, which is going to speed up the process. Well, uh, with this kind of profession, there is no way to be self-employed. There is no way to be a consultant. What I was thinking, I put a request for transfer to a different location. Could it be this beneficial solution that the courts are showing Yes, because mm-hmm. that would yes that that would fall under the the Knight of Wands being about movement or travel. It's like you 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 can't stay where you are. So if that means you have the opportunity and ability to move to someplace else within the company or that kind of thing, that's very Knight of Wands. That's fine, but you can't stay where you are. Exactly. That's what I. That's why I submitted a request. Actually, um, I told that if I'm not transferred, I'm going to quit. That's. That's the way things are. I, I'm not able to stay where I am. It got to the point when many things didn't go the right way. But, well, no, um, that, that, that's fine. But the Knight of Wands is encouraging, saying that that probably is going to come through sooner rather than later, and that you'll probably be making that move by December. Mm-hmm. But do you think it, it will be a good move for me, or I should just leave yes, the company altogether? No, because it's followed by the Three of Cups. So. Basically, the Knight of Wands followed by the Three of Cups says any move you make is going to be beneficial for you or you're going to find a reason to celebrate, you're going to enjoy, or it's going to be a happier situation for you. Okay, thank you. Everybody advises me just to resign because it's 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 kind of difficult, but it's not because well, but, of your performance. Something else, but, just too much gossiping well, going on. But how far away are you from retirement that you mentioned? Well, that's a problem, about five, six more years. And that's the biggest issue that I even consulted with the attorney, and he told me you won't be able to find a job in your age. So think twice before you quit. There is no jobs for people retirement, pre-retirement age. And you're losing, you may be in the situation when you have to file for bankruptcy. You won't be able to support yourself. And um, if you're fired, but you're not going to be fired because you're doing a good job. And that's, he told me, be be very careful with this career, with this profession. There is no consultant jobs. There is no such thing as a self-employment. And I've been doing this for all my life. And that's what he told me. So I don't know. That's kind of a difficult situation. I don't want to end up with no money at all. Okay, well, so so first of all, you're getting, you know, he, he's creating a fearful situation that doesn't need to be there because you are all of a sudden buying into some story. You've already convinced yourself that somehow you're on the streets. <laughs> and it's like, no, you're still no, on the job. No, 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 I'm not, but... Well, but we don't want to we don't want to act or react in a way that is based out of fear. So one thing that this says is even moving within the job, you don't have to leave where you are right now. Even moving to this other location, the Three of Cups says it's then going to somehow one alleviate the situation, two put you into a better situation and surroundings, and three would then perhaps provide you a greater opportunity for connecting with some other people or other opportunities that may actually give you a way to move out of this company. But for now, we just need to make a move. And if that move means staying employed by this company, but moving to a new location, we need to do that and we need to do it soon. 
if we've already applied for it, we need to push it. And if we've pushed it, then it probably is going to happen between now and the end of the year. It's going to happen quickly. The Knight of Wands being there, it's just things always happen quickly with the Knight of Wands. <laughs> um, so uh, there you are. <laughs> I asked in summer, and I was denied this transfer. That's why I put it again. But if I'm denied again, I have no other choice but just to quit the job. Well, but th that could say that that was just the wrong time to ask, and now is mm -hmm. the right time. So, so putting it in again, uh, you have have you already put it in again, or you're getting ready to put it in again? Put it last week, officially, in writing, okay. and okay. I'm waiting for a decision. I don't know if I will well, be denied the, or approved. The, the fact that the Knight of Wands is here would say that it's it's going to move forward and it's going to move forward quickly. So that would tell me that just when you previously asked, it was just the wrong timing. But now we yeah. seem to be in the right timing. And therefore, we're going to see things happening far more quickly um, okay. rather than getting denied like we did before. But do you think I will be okay financially or, or, or things just will not work out at all? Well, the fact that the Three of Cups is in the long term says that making a move is going to put us in a better place. It's not a card that creates worry. It's a card that actually is cause for celebration or makes us feel happy and joyful just about life in general. So it, it's not something that is about doom and gloom. You know, the, the doom and gloom cards, if you wanted them, are basically what came up first, but that means that we're either in them or we're just now moving out of that doom and gloom period. And the, the much more positive cards are in the forward or the future positions. So we're moving to or towards a period that is far happier, far better, far more positive than what we have recently been through. And and I see, do you think these positive cards will affect uh, finding a romantic person today that would make me happy? Or it well, will be just job? No, it, it, it's, it's all areas, especially the fact that it's three of cups. We could say that it... It encompasses many different areas of our life, or it's about everything and everyone that we're surrounded by. So it's going to, because what it'll do is it's going to shift the energy in you and around you, which means that people and, and relationship possibilities are more likely to be attracted to you or to come in, whereas there may be energetic interference right now because you have a lot going on that is creating... Um, negative or just difficult energy around you because of other things going on in your life. So mm -hmm. making and I was going to ask you, I spoke to a couple of people about the rituals. They said that there is so many, so much negative um, energy around you. You have to do some cleansing. Should I speak to you about this? I understand not on the air time, but maybe in private, because everybody says you need to get away from negative energy somehow. I don't think that someone put a spell on me, but somehow I got with so many issues like this year from January that I never had them in my entire life. And it was like mountains and mountains, and I am trying to get rid of one problem, and then it was another problem, problem. so it drained me emotionally so much in the last 10, 9, 10 months that I was going to ask you, should I contact you with for the rituals? So you suggested, lady, I had a chance to listen to your recommendations for rituals. I forgot your name that uh, was just talking before the readings. Or rabbit something way. Oh, yes. Way yes, of the... a rabbit. Mm -hmm. Way of the rabbit. 
Um, if you wanted to talk to her, if you prefer to talk to a woman, that certainly is fine. I'm certainly happy to talk to you about that. I mean, that's also something I do, which is ritual and magic consultations. So, And there's a lot of things that you could do um, to, to help, one, break the energy that's been going on to start sending that negative energy and clear that negative energy away in order to then start to pull in and fill the space with something that is more positive or supportive or conducive to what it is that you want. So, I mean, sure, I'm happy to talk to you about that. It's totally up to you it's, if you want to talk to me or if you prefer to talk to a woman, then I'm sure you could talk to Rabbit. Um, you know, there's so that would be up to you. Okay, and if there's any cleaning ritual, usually you do this for people or we have to do this ourselves? We just give the instructions. Well, the... Uh, generally, I prefer the person do it for themselves because it's it's part it's it's important energetically to be an active part of the process rather than somebody just doing it for you. Um, you know, if there are circumstances or, or things that may prevent a person from being able to do it, that's another issue to deal with. Um, you know, and and certainly. Like if I have you creating a candle or doing something for yourself, I can create a candle as well. Therefore, I can light the candle at the same time you light the candle so that it's working, you know, kind of to uh, it's kind of doubling the the energy or that kind of thing. But ultimately, I think it's always important for the person to do it themselves because it's your energy and your situation and therefore showing the universe we're going to be part of the process and taking an active role in shifting and creating things for ourselves is more important than just I asked somebody else to do this for me. Because mm. I, actually I was burning white candles and I put them in the bowl of salt um, for several days. Honestly, didn't do anything. So I don't know, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Someone told me just to put it in the bowl of salt, um, kind of candle holder filled with salt and put a white candle and lit it and, and light well, what, it. And then, what were you burning the mm -hmm. white candle for? To clear up the negative energy, that's what because yeah. So I, so I would I would just switch that a little bit because I would I would be burning black candles in order to dispel and clear the negative away, um, and then I would go to a white candle if you're just going to do black and white. I would go to a white candle in order to start filling and drawing in the more positive and pure energies. So uh, and and the salt would be more of a black thing. The the salt it, it could be around a white candle as well. Salt's very protective, but it also can be used to help clear. So using it with the black candle actually would probably be more effective. But there's other things that you can add to that, um, herbs and oils and things that you can add to the candle and some other things. So th there's other things as well. But I just think that the white candle isn't bad. It's not necessarily wrong. It's I just think that a black candle would be more effective for specifically what you're trying to do, and then the white candle would end up being more for what comes next rather than for the getting rid of. Kind of scary to burn black candle. I never did this in my life. I I like black or white candles, but I know that some people use black, and it's scary for me. I don't know. I'm well, Christian, so I don't know. A candle is just a candle. It's all about either the intention that's brought to it or the energy that's used um, with the candle. It's not about the candle itself. But candles, you know, black candles especially, black is, think of it like a black hole. Black is really good for sending things away. We want to bury it. We want to release it into a black hole so that it goes away and never comes back. 
And that's exactly what you're trying to do with this negative energy that is kind of built up around you. So we need to kind of take it and send it off to some place where it's like, okay, go and evaporate so that you never come back. And then I'll replace the darkness with the light. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the right, it was the right thing just to put salt into the candle holder and I put the candle on top. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I just think that the white candle wasn't quite the most effective one to use for the purpose that you were trying to achieve. And how many days usually suggested to use to, to burn the candle? Like one day, ten days, a month? Well, if you're going to be diligent about it, I would say to do it for a full moon cycle. Um, and since we have a new moon on Monday, that would start on Monday and then go for the next four weeks, roughly, 29 days. Um if you, uh, if nothing else, perhaps doing it for at least 14 days where you would start on a full moon and go to a, a new moon uh, because that's called the waning moon. And a waning moon is really good for releasing and sending things away. So doing the black candle portion to release the negativity and clear things away over the course of that two weeks would be really good. And then at the new moon, you would start with the white candle in order to, for the, the next two weeks through the full moon to start drawing in and filling and surrounding yourself with you know positive energy, with what you're replacing all of the things you sent away, now you want to draw in and replace with. So, so here, I mean, maybe doing it for a full moon cycle, but maybe we would do it from full moon to full moon. So the first two weeks would be with the black candle, and then the second two weeks would be with the white candle. Is it possible that the black candle can remove something good from from yourself, from life? I don't know. <laughs> If it's removing um, things. No, because ultimately you either carve in the candle or you're just very specific. Because I always have people say things when they light the candle. You're very spe- specific and very clear in what it is that it's burning away. Because you actually say what those things are. You carve it into the candle. And then the candle is connected specifically and directly to the things that you have now designated it for and not other things. So if you just talk about the negative, the clearing, the things that you actually want to release and send away, if you say that every time you light the candle, if you've carved that into the candle, that's what the candle is going to do. It's not going to affect other things. Okay. Thank you so much, Hi C. I will re-listen everything that you just told me. I really appreciate your time. And it be, believe me, it was so draining time for me, so difficult. I was trying to contact you. Well, but I appreciate all your information, and I will read the for the show in the archives, and I will okay. decide what I will do next, and um, thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. God sure. bless you. And thank you to everyone for listening today. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode of Revolution. Um, I'm here for Revolution every second Sunday of the month. I'll be here again this coming Tuesday, every second Tuesday. I co-host the Amethystorical Divination with a Queer Twist. And uh, this month we're having a guest on to talk about ecstatic bodies in the Tarot, which is finding uh, and using uh, things like Tarot and other kind of tools, being able to identify how we can use them to show us the kind of exercise uh, and the kind of body movements that we can do to uh, both gain guidance and insight into things as well as to start to affect change within ourselves and within our lives. So I think that you'll find it very 
interesting and worthwhile to listen to uh, that, and I would encourage you to um, uh, tune in. And that will be on this coming Tuesday at 8 o'clock Pacific time, p.m. Um, And if you are hearing this after that uh, date, you can always find that in the archives on Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes. So thank you for listening, and I will look forward to having you join me here again next month on Revolution. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Convergence with John Caracella, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.